0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So I am delighted to to be here and to see so many of you um, coming out to to be with me. It's all about me tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not often that people just want to gayfully move towards this topic. Usually people come with a bit of trepidation, a bit of heartburn, a bit of history about, you know, how it could be or might be. And um, and some people show up and may not have even known this was a topic, and it's like, oh, what's happening? But to all of you, thank you, and thank you to both Andrea and Gil for this lovely invitation. We've been talking about it for a while. Um, I have a lot I want to say to you tonight, and, um, but the way I like to begin is to invite you to um, stand up, if you can, and just for a minute, I want you to, whatever it means to you, to go a little out of your way, out of your comfort zone, and just stand face to face with somebody that you don't, maybe not, you don't know here. So just do that in silence. Just, just find another body to stand with. Look around. If you don't have someone, raise your hand, look around. Look around. Okay, Gil, it's okay to join a trio. Fine. <laughs> and just looking here, taking a breath, relaxing your awareness here. And it's okay to be in a trio. And just repeat after me to as you look and at the person facing you. If I didn't belong to you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. If you didn't belong to me, you, belong to me you, wouldn't you wouldn't have come. Your heart, Your heart. and my heart, and my heart. Are, very are very old friends. So offer a bow and a <laughs> smile and have a seat, please. So, uh, just to, to honor the, um, the native people of this land, I don't know their names, but I know they've been here uh, for many lifetimes, <laughs> caring for this land that we're all sitting on, honor our ancestors, honor our choice to be here when you think about um, the choices you had this evening of whether you came or not for some reason you found your way here so I'm bowing to that and uh, to this beautiful space that we have to uh, sit in and to be together in so I'm grateful so um, also an acknowledgement of this air we're breathing right now and just this the pervasive um, devastation that's occurring uh, through these fires and other major losses um, senseless losses that we have in this in our society um, you know sometimes I look at the news and it's, 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 it's just there's a lot that we're sitting with and being with a lot of shock to the system, a lot of traumas. Um, and there's all of the invisible things that we're not able to see, you know, that occur. Um, sometimes we think that what's on the news is, is all there is, and then there's all these other things that don't get addressed uh, that we know is still going, out, going on in the world. There really is still the uh, issues of, of immigration and issues of gun violence, and issues of um, 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 domestic terror, and mental health. And all of these things are still happening, uh, whether they're uh, recognized or acknowledged on the media or seen as the priority issue. So there's a lot. Um, going on and for uh, in many ways these are belonging issues when i look at some of the issues that are happening it's, it's like where does how do, how is belonging playing out in all of this um, so this evening of all the things we could talk about I'm 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 wanting to talk about race and racism and more specifically how we begin to transform our relationship to this construction of harm from the inside out. How we begin to look at that and use this practice as a way of looking at it uh, to drop the distress and the numbness or the rage or the anxiety of racism right into the heart of our mindfulness practice. And for me, I've found that to be um, a profoundly uh, uh, a profound teaching, a way of softening and soothing uh, my inner um, uh, understanding so that I can respond more wisely to the world. Because there's so much to be done, right? So uh, just the realization of what we do next being um, the activity of planting seeds. And if we're not conscious of what we're planting, it doesn't stop the fact that we're planting so waking up to that is so crucial, our understanding of, of, of many issues, but in particular, race. One of the questions I ask often and invite people to look at is, why are matters of race still matters of concern, and what does that have to do with me? Why are matters of race still matters of concern, and what does that have to do with me? Sometimes the question is not meant to be answered as much as it's meant to apprentice us. It's a question that we want to ask continuously as a practice, so that we can uh, not be looking at the answer, but looking at our relationship to the question. Itself as a, as a form of practice. And one of the ways I like to frame this inquiry is looking at the teachings in our tradition on the two truth doctrines there's ultimate reality and relative reality. So, in, in ultimate reality, we are nobodies, you know, uh, this kind of um, formless, uh, non self self. The nonsense of self is understood. Nonsense of a non-self is understood. But in relative reality and conventional reality, the world of concepts and structures, you know, we we are somebody. We're in these bodies. These bodies have um, different ways that has been conditioned and shaped and um, different ways has been um, conditioned to respond to the world. So in relative reality, I'm an African-American woman, elder, lesbian, great-grandmother, artist, and a few other words that people have given me that I don't agree with, you know. <laughs> you know. So I'm all that. But in ultimate reality, you know, there's this none of that. I'm none of that. In relative reality, there's racial ignorance and harm and hatred and exploitation and suffering, racial suffering in this fear body. But in in ultimate reality, um, there's no such thing as race. Right? And these teachings, you know, uh, are understood to be uh, two expressions of one truth, two perspectives, two ways of, of looking. And when we come in the spiritual community, sometimes we're attracted to the ultimate reality kind of idea. But so many of us want racism to go away without being touched by it, without caring for it, with, without really feeling uh, your relationship to it. I like what John Wellwood, the Buddhist psychologist back in the 80s, uh, who was in the insight tradition, said about spiritual bypass. I think it really supports us with understanding this sense of ultimate and relative. And he says, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to dismiss relative human needs and psychological problems. He says, I see this as an occupational hazard of spiritual path, trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them is dangerous it leads to a conceptual one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of of its opposite absolute truth is favored over relative truth emptiness over form transcendence over embodiment and detachment over feelings So this is an important understanding as we begin to look at the relative constructs of our social realm within the broader you know, understanding of ultimate reality and sometimes the bypass is about trying to avoid the messiness of our relatedness the soup we're all a part of that we need to taste that we're actually bringing a spice to. So as I speak to you this evening, I'm speaking from the perspective of relative, our relative reality. And I'm using gross labels like white folks, black folks, people of color, (coughs) not to speak of separation, but to speak of the fact that that exists in our society, that there is severed, Belonging, there is a reflection of consciousness that we can readily see that supports that division. It's a, it's a, it's a reflection of consciousness. And um, I like what uh, Ajahn Tejaniya says. He says that people only become awake and alert when there is some sort of discomfort or distress. They stop paying attention once they are comfortable again. So I'm hoping to create just a little discomfort. (laughs) You know, in fact, um, I consider discomfort as a core competency for waking up around this issue. So you're right in the right zone if you're feeling um, your heart impacted. And Bhikkhu Bodhi describes a poly term called Samvega where he says he describes it as an inner commotion or shock which does not allow us to rest with our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it drives us on out of our cozy palaces and into unfamiliar jungles to work out with diligence authentic solutions to our existential plight. So it, it can be useful to be um, in a place of discomfort. Um, it, it, discomfort gets our attention. Uh, what we do with it, of course, is important. So I often refer to racism as a heart disease that's curable. And um, what I mean by that is... is is. Uh, um, It's a disease of heart in that um, it really speaks to a sense of severed severed belonging, you know. As somebody who's had open heart surgery at 27, the heart's always been a metaphor for me around waking up, matters of the heart, broken heart, open heart, you know. heartbreak, heart healing. So it's a heart disease that's curable. I think a big part of the cure that supports us in being with this in a, in a wholesome way is mindfulness. So I'd like to, uh, I have a prop, and it's a Rubik. <laughs> and... Um, I haven't figured it out, but that's the whole point. But what I'm really trying to illustrate is that there's six concepts I just want to offer this evening, and there are really three pairs of things for us to to give some attention to. And I'll speak to those as we go through. And as I speak to you this evening, I'd like for you to keep at least 50% of your attention on your body and breath. So that you can stay with me in this, in this inquiry. Stay as present. And not just hear the words, but let yourself be with what's actually being said. So the first pair on the rubric is um, that we're all good individuals. And we're all part of racial identity groups. Some of us know that and some of us don't we're all good individuals in that we were all raised and, you know, we've all had traumas and losses and gains and were brilliance and all these things we've experienced in our families. We've all made deals in our families to, 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 ha- to belong and to get our needs met. And we learned a lot in our families about how to be in the world. Um, but I think we fundamentally here as good people you know we're all good individuals and we're all part of racial identity groups so that means something that means that when you're looked at it's not just the individual that we're looking at we're also looking at a gestalt of experience that has influenced you from your own racial group identity and some of us know that and some of us don't So one of the things, to one of the dynamics that happens with this individual and racial group identity is oftentimes white folks can relate to being individuals, individuals. People of color tend to relate to being racial group identities. They, they relate to their racial group identity at large. So when we're having the conversation about race, we're really bringing different things to the table, White people tend to bring themselves as good individuals. People of color tend to bring a whole history of of what's um, uh, been happening, um, not just to them, but to other people in their lives. And that's what's getting talked about. And they're meeting with other white folks that are talking about themselves as individuals. And we miss each other. So that's a core dynamic on this piece of the the Rubik. One of the ways that plays out is I have um, white people have said to me on many occasions individually, uh, when I look at you I don't see race. That's a common comment. That's an ultimate reality comment. <laughs> you know, it's not a relative comment. And so something gets missed when I hear that comment. I do understand it. I understand what it means. But it's, it's not... It's not um, it, it doesn't allow me to connect. In fact, I get a little scared, because if you don't see my race, there's a lot being missed out. I don't need for you to say, oh, I see your race. But, when, but I don't want to hear, when I look at you, I don't see race. <laughs> you know, it's just something um, assumed in that. What gets assumed in that is that when I look at you, I see you as I see myself, which is a good individual. Right? that's not so much connected to racial group identity. So it becomes a little problematic. And another way to understand this is rarely what you hear a person of color saying to a white person, when I look at you, I don't see race, or I don't see color. And that's just a way of understanding how this dynamic works of of what we bring into these conversations and what we walk with and this kind of relative perspective. Now it's interesting, um, many white people that I've worked with can readily say they can relate th- to the group identities of like family or religion or gender, but not so much race. You know, that that's a territory that hasn't really been felt into in a... In a, in a collective way and for people of color um, we tend to live in collective because our lives depend on uh, each other to navigate um, the dominant culture that we live in so this is a really important understanding to have when we are trying to have, uh, trying to understand our conditioning around race is to see that we bring a different lens to the conversation that could be experienced as a microaggression or an invisibility or um, and it's just the root of many misunderstandings when we're trying to talk. A second part of the rubric, the next pair I want to talk about has to do with all racial groups are not created equal. There are dominant racial groups and subordinated racial groups, so this is really looking at the power dynamic at the collective level so um, there are some dominant and subordinated uh, dynamics that we can begin to notice in our social realm and and a lot of us know this we have uh, um, Dominant culture, which happens to be white folks right now um, when we're looking at race. Dominant in terms of who has pervasive power at the collective level as a racial group identity. So, uh, so what's happening with dominant and subordinated um, power dynamics is that the dominant culture, there's a presumption in society of superiority there 's a presumption of that, and for people of color which are subordinated racial identity groups there 's an assumption of inferiority, if not criminalization. We can see how this works um, the, the, the The current administration, for example, in terms of of um, looking at issues around immigration and and migration and um, I mean, the, the list is long. This assumption of superiority and inferiority is something we can see at a collective level. The dominant group defines um, social norms. Subordinated racial groups tend to have to figure out how to resist or assimilate into those norms. Dominant culture tends to control resources. Subordinated racial groups tend to have to figure out how resources get more neutralized or equitable, most dominant people people, white folks in the dominant culture, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, uh, there's oftentimes no relationship with understanding collective, because the individual mindset is what what is is um, predominant there. So dominant group members are unaware of being membered in whiteness, basically. Subordinated racial groups are very aware of being um, connected to other racial groups because, again, their lives depend on it. So these are some of the characteristics of dominant and subordinated racial dynamics. They're characteristics that we can see and begin to question it's hard to see these characteristics if you're looking from an individual lens. But you're able to see the patterns when you, when you see yourself as part of racial identity groups. But if you're not affiliated or can't touch into being membered in a racial affinity group, it'll feel personal. And this is a dynamic that is difficult when it goes personal. One of the things I talk about often is that there are six hindrances to racial harmony that are behaviors that play themselves out in this dominant and subordinated dance. And we don't have time to go through all of them. But I would like to talk about one in particular. And it has to do with what I refer to as the stars and the constellations. The stars and the constellations. So what I mean by that is at the individual level, this is looking at both the first pair, individual and group, but also the second pair, how it plays out with dominant and subordinated racial group identities. What happens pervasively often, although I think some of this is changing a bit, is that uh, uh, white people will see Singular incidents, as it relates to race, and people of color are looking at the Big Dipper, as it relates to race. That there's a pattern that's seen and lived and felt. So, um, uh, one way to look at this is that you'll you'll hear people saying, "All lives matter." I've heard a number of white people saying, "All lives matter." Of course, that's ultimate. <laughs> Again, individual, ultimate kind of notion perspective, you hear subordinated groups talking about black lives matter. You see, because that's a statement of subordination and and the the, 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 the need for there to be a bit more um, balance um, and consideration and the harm that's created there. It's hard to touch that if you're saying all lives matter. Something gets lost in understanding the racial group identities that are actually targets of harm that we walk with. So I remember being, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, an 18-year-old African-American man by a 28-year-old white man, Darren Wilson, just looking at the ages the the youth that's there, um, with a ga- a grandson that's 25 now. I just, I mean, I can just see, you know, um, if this Darren Wilson was anything like <laughs> my grandson with a gun and power. I mean, that's that's it. It just, you know, I, I sometimes when I see people in the airport that are in their you know, military outfits—they look like little kids to me. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm—I'm I'm in this 70-year-old body now. But it's like my babies can't be going out there with those. You know. The <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I was at a meeting in Charlotte where we were coming together to try to un- to talk about this killing and really um, talk about how we felt about it and what we could do about it. And there was—we were showed the video clip and asked. To go around and talk about what we say and felt and there was this uh, white man in our group maybe around 44 and he, th- he had just watched the video and he said you know I can't believe that man killed that boy like that and that 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 was horrible it was wrong it was clearly wrong and he was trembling and shaking and upset and clearly just really rocked by it as we all were he saw the stars. He saw the star of that incident. When I shared, I said, I can't believe that once again a, a white man armed killed a black unarmed man, and this is happening a lot. And I was shaken and crying, and we were all upset about it. I saw the constellation. He saw the stars an unfortunate incident. It didn't have color in his description. It was, so, so there's this way that we miss each other when we try to talk about these incidents because of how we're conditioned to see them. You know, again, looking individually, from an individual lens, we, we, we don't always connect the dots. We don't see the tattoo. We don't see the gestalt. And this is a place of activation and realization, real harm um, for people of color. And I think when we can start to see these constellations, we can understand that the, the, the incidents that happen like in the Starbucks, you know, we can understand the incident of the the woman of color at Yale taking the nap and the you know it 's not just those solo incidents; they represent a constellation of harm, and we want to bring our attention to that and When we begin to notice these constellations, we can see the patterns of harm you know just historically and just how long running this has been with Aboriginal people and Native American people and Uh, dark bodies and immigrants throughout the world and the United States. We can look at Palestine. We can look at Syria, Tibet, Australia, Bosnia. I mean, we can begin to see the patterns, the constellations of harm and concern ourselves with that. And we can also then begin to see the systems that perpetuate and capitalize uh, you know, uh, what Naomi Klein talks about is disaster capitalists that breed a certain system of oppression that, that's driven in profit, like the prison industrial complex, the, 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 weapon, the, weaponi- the weaponizing of the military force. The kind of insane response to the, the people that are uh, seeking uh, safety. The, response, the militarized response to, to that. We can see these as patterns, not just clips or, or isolated issues. They're bigger than that. They represent a bigger story. So we have individuals. We're all individuals. We're all part of racial group identities. All racial group identities are not created equal. There's dominant and subordinated racial dynamics that we can begin to notice. And what happens then within institutions, the institution is where racism lives. I seldom use the word racist because it speaks to an individual. And that's really not what racism is about. Racism is about, is a power dynamic. It's about, uh, it's where policies, practices, norms, um, uh, that's where all of that lives unconsciously. Most of the institutions in this country weren't built with people of color in mind. And most people of color are not trying to be white. They're trying to be themselves. So when, when, when we try all this mushing together inside of organizations, we're going to meet some real challenges. It's appropriately messy. So it's not so much about whether an institution is, 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 has racism or not. It's how, how are we going to work with, with uh, dismantling that. It's really, really more about acknowledging that, of course. Because what happens when white people are in charge of institutions, they bring their consciousness around race with them, and that gets proliferated. That's not a criticism, it's just what we take ourselves where we go. And because whiteness hasn't been uh, vetted or investigated among other white people, there's really not a way of understanding how that actually lives and breathes. as a a collective force, as a force of power that's actually influencing many, many other races. So the consciousness isn't there around whiteness and yet it's collected with, with, with the capacity to influence and control resources and make decisions about others' lives. So the power dynamic of dominance and subordination just gets morphed into the leadership of institutions. And then a good use of the privilege there is how that can be dismantled consciously, how that can be felt into. So a lot of what we see often is that um, institutions or organizations will attempt to, for example, try to bring in more people of color to have more representation inside the organization, which is a gesture of, of acknowledging that that's needed. But what happens is that the institution itself hasn't, hasn't looked at its cultural norms around dominance and, and racial conditioning. So then you pop the color in there, but yet the system hasn't really... Uh, changed it's like an affirmative action model where we've got representation but it doesn't really have a sustaining um, heart so it doesn't have uh, uh, it, it actually lacks a bit of respect in that dynamic the intention as well but the impact um, is uh, different And this is where tokenism comes from, right? And uh, and it's a very painful process because all of us want to belong, you
2: know.
1: And then you know, within this, not so much the institutional realm, but more pervasively in the social realm, we have the dynamic of white privilege. It's a real it's a real force collectively. And oftentimes an unconscious one because most white people I meet with don't feel privileged. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't describe themselves as privileged. They would tell me their story about how they've been harmed. But privilege can only be understood at the collective level. You can't understand privilege at the individual level. You have to understand it as a part of a system that you belong to. And because white people haven't looked at that system so intimately, then that engagement doesn't happen. And then I have white people that say to me, you know, how do I be a good ally to people of color? That's an individual question, not rooted in collective. I want that, you know, I I want the care to be there. But one of the best things that white people can do to be a good ally is to understand and engage whiteness with other white people so that there's an understanding of collective impact. What I see a lot is white people saying, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They don't get it. I'm frustrated. You know, let me come over here where I feel like I can get something done, you know. but if white people are not doing that work with other white people, guess who's picking up the slack? I've done quite a bit of my work out in Charlottesville and I remember the mayor getting up and saying, you know, after the the rally and protests were there and the killing of, of Heather was there and, and he said, these, these white alt-right people need to leave our fair city or something like that and my question is where are they gonna go where are they gonna go dismembered, dismembered because people of color have to deal with that I, of course there are a lot of white folks against um, what was happening in Charlottesville, don't get me wrong but I think at a larger level, you know, and a chronic level, a generational level, people of color have been holding that, the weight of, of, of pushing against those forces that are so emboldened right now. Right? One of the dynamics of privilege, uh, white privilege, is the dynamic of blindness, sameness, and silence. We don't always... C race, we don't talk about it, we don't talk about ourselves as racial beings. And it's normal to just be with other white people as a norm. That is a norm. Especially in a lot of our inside communities. I ran across this saying on Facebook, so it must be true, <laughs> back, in, uh, back in 2015, and it says um, incoming Congress. 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. <laughs> That's how the blindness, sameness, and silence happens. I was just talking this past Monday. Uh, I was substituting for Jack Cornfield's group at Spirit Rock, and I did this talk. And a white guy came up to me and he said, "Do you mean to tell me that?" Um, he said, I have to disagree with you. I don't think, you know, uh, I, I, think, I think we should all get in a room together and talk about race. And I disagree that we need to be separate in talking about it. How else are we going to learn about racism? And that brings me to the third pair on the rubric, which is mindfulness and racial affinity groups. Two structures that I think can support us in deconstructing our conditioning around race very intentionally. Two of many structures. I'm sure there there are others. But with the racial affinity groups, one of the things I'm um, encouraging is that we get together with um, other people of our same race and begin to uh, ask some very um, caring and pointed questions about our conditioning, so that we can wake up around that. And there are very specific instructions that I offer, so that that container is um, uh, safe. find my notes on racial affinity groups So you know forming a racial affinity group I'm suggesting that you get from 3 to 5 maybe no more than 7 people of your own race And for white people I even encourage separating the genders because what happens with white people when we start to talk when you start to talk about race is with with other with mixed-gendered folks, is that the, gender, the, 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 uh, the um, subordination of women gets so hot in those discussions that race gets subordinated, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you get so pissed off about patriarchy, and then you're off and running. It's like, what happened to race, you know? So I, I encourage, you know, white women get together, get, you know, and men get together and begin to really look at that so you can stay focused on race and not move away from it Um, so it's not an act of separation as much as it is an opportunity to learn ways to bridge for um, for a deeper inquiry around this topic, and we're becoming more intimate with our own conditioning and our own experiences around race, and we're also trying to um, connect with people like ourselves to support um, a sense of staying presence around this topic, staying present around this topic. People of color need to be in racial affinity groups as well because it's a place when we, when we get separate it's a place where we can investigate who are we in the absence of being in a perpetual state of fighting white folks or being at angst with white people. What's left out when we're in the grip of that narrative of that conditioning and also with people of color sometimes I think we find that we need a space where we can begin to dismantle internalized oppression the ways we've been conditioned to mimic a certain dominance and subordination with other races so one of the things I refer to is what I call the racial pyramid of subordinated (laughs) suffering And one way that plays out is when when black folks start talking about slavery and there's other races that are subordinated in the conversation, there's a certain silence of those other races in the conversation. And one of the things we want to open to is how we um, are not subordinating other voices of color that have stories to tell. And... um, Also, need to be seen and loved. We need places where we can do this. We can't do it on the fly. We need a deal. We need a deal like okay, we're going to meet for a year, once a month, a few hours when we get together. We're not going to interrupt each other. We're going to listen. We're going to use our practice to stay present, to look at our activation. We're going to love each other through it. We're going to show up. You know, you, you make this kind of deal so that there is a place where this is being looked at and it's not just appendaged on, on something else. And white people need a racial affinity group to begin to look at whiteness and to begin to feel into the field of collective. Um... I've had, I I think I would describe it as um, a road less traveled for many white people to come together to talk about race. It's a road less traveled, although I am seeing some shifts in that happening. Some of the things we can ask in our racial affinity groups are things like when did you first discover you were a race? And what were the events that solidified you as a racial being talking to each other about that what are the roots of your racial lineage and given your lineage what has your race gained or lost what has your racial group membership protected you from knowing experiencing or trusting about other racial groups and why do you think that was necessary And what beliefs do you have about other racial groups that create inner distress for you? And how do these beliefs impact your relationship to race and racism? So I have a link on my website that really speaks to the the structure of how to set up a group, the, the agreements you make with each other, and a list of about 25 questions to ask. Because what commonly happens with white people that get in racial affinity groups is they start talking about how they go fix and fix the the issues out here. I don't want you to stop that. But there's there's another kind of inquiry I'd like for you to consider, which is really looking at your conditioning, looking at the intimacy of the collective experience of whiteness. People of color have a similar kind of work to do. Similar, but different. So so one structure I'm encouraging that supports group development is the racial affinity groups. And what supports the individual development is our mindfulness meditation practice itself. The practice we, we do together. I love, again, what... Um, Ajahn Tejania says, he says, one thing you need to remember is that you, can nev- you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched constantly. <laughs> if, you, if you do not look after your mind, it will overgrow with weeds. And I didn't say weed, but weeds. <laughs> if you do not watch your mind, harm will grow and multiply. But this is the best part of the line. He says, the mind does not belong to you but you're responsible for it. Right? So we're responsible for, for our mind. We can't control the blooms that we're seeing in our society right now, but we're responsible for how we respond to it. I heard a teacher refer to it. He said, um, there's something we can't do about this present moment, and there's something that we can do about it. And just holding that as truth. And, and um, our mindfulness practice is a beautiful way to decolonize the mind. To really examine the mechanism and the ways we've constructed our reality around race. And lay out the bones of that and create some space and air and heartfulness so that there can be uh, um, an understanding of, uh, of our conditioning. And one of the beautiful teachings uh, that I think support this for us is, is um, in the Vipalasa Sutta, which is really sh- talking to us about the distortion of perception. That we have perceptions or misperceptions. What comes with the perception are these thoughts and emotions. And they kind of arise and, and, then, and then there's a view that gets shaped, especially out of the repeat pattern of that. So the way this lives out is, um, you know, I was in Charlottesville, and a woman was taking me to the airport. And, uh, and I looked up, we were at a stop sign, and I looked up, and the street was called Barack Avenue. And I said, oh, my gosh, where am I? I'm in this progressive city. <laughs> You know, in my mind, I'm calling my partner saying, let's move here. They have a drink off of Rock Avenue. All of a sudden, I get hot, and my body, my heart, I can feel my heart beating, and I sit up straight, and I feel like I'm about to talk in Swahili, and, you know, all these things are happening in my mind. I mean, I was just overjoyed, you know. this just all of my perception about all of this, and, and it occurs to me to open my mouth and say to the driver, you know, wow, what a, what a progressive city to have a street called Barack Avenue and she clears her throat and says in these parts we call it Barracks Avenue Mm -hmm. and of course we giggled all the way to the airport but (laughs) I was so convinced and I created a whole story about what that meant and it was all my creation in in my mind and I was off and running with, with that being you know a whole chain of events happens when we when we do that and we do it at a split of a second I was on an airplane and uh, I usually wear this wristband it says mindful of race not there yet and uh, I usually wear three of them and I'll give one away if I meet somebody and Instead of pulling my hair out, I'll just hand them one of these wristbands. <laughs> you know? It's a fun way to connect. But I was uh, coming through and the, and the stewardess said, oh, what does your wristband say? And I said, mindful of race. And before I could get to the next part, she says, oh, I ran a 10K once. Um, wait a minute. She said, I ran a 10K for cancer. And, wow, you're really looking good. You know And I'm? So they put the race together with my bald head and made the assumption that I had been, that I was a cancer, you know. And then, let me show you to your seat. Then I got all kind of free stuff on the plane. (laughs) I decided to turn it into a privilege. (laughs) You know, but we think we know stuff. We just think we know, and then we're often running with it. When And this practice supports us in bringing a pause to this. There's another story that I heard a while back. It was a Dear Abby. It said, It says, a couple of women moved in across the hall from me. One is a middle-aged gym teacher and the other is a social worker in her mid-twenties. These two women go everywhere together and I've never seen a man go inside and leave their apartment. Do you think they could be Lebanese? (laughs) (laughs) We don't know anything. We think we know everything. But you know, the other thing about this is is the woman in Brooklyn, in the Brooklyn Deli recently, right? This Teresa Klein, a 53-year-old white woman who calls 911 accusing a 9-year-old black boy of grabbing her behind. And when they played the video back for her to see what happened, it was his backpack that brushed against, against her. And while she was somewhat apologetic about that, she still felt righteously indignant that the mother of the black child was outraged. So this is the same dynamic of 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 um, the perception of a nine-year-old, <laughs> you know, just story that's concocted in the mind about what that means, and then calling nine-one-one. Right, I mean the, the jump to that calling 911 is kind of this norm that we see um, so this is the same mechanism at work this perception that we have we, we're challenged with really questioning our perceptions and some of those questions can be around you know when we're sitting in our practice and we've, get, we've given ourselves a little space to really bring our practice into the inquiry, we can begin to ask some questions like, you know, um, how am I relating to what's happening here? You know, uh, what racial view or beliefs are fueling distress in this moment for me? This is if we can turn around and turn inward to look at, look at what's happening, especially when we get gripped when we feel distressed or disturbed? What assumptions am I making here? Do they support distress or freedom in my mind? What am I holding on to? So the mindfulness practice becomes a a core way for us to begin to investigate our impulses And why are we doing all of this? I mean um, we're doing this because uh ultimately we're 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 wanting a culture of care we're wanting i mean, I think we deeply care It's an act of care and compassion when we give the issues of race and our racial construction some real good attention, some heartful attention again when we drop it into this practice. Why not? The Buddha specialized in suffering and the end of suffering. This is a tremendous suffering that we are living and breathing. And one of the ways I think we could keep the heart a bit lubricated around this is um, I tell people that they get 10 get-out-of-jail-free cards a day. And on one side of the card, you could kind of write about how you blew it or what you weren't aware of or what you're learning, well, what, what, what happened. And then on the other side of the card, you can write what you learned about it and how you're working with it and it takes a tremendous amount of heart to, to, uh, to care and to stay in the practice of looking at this we can't see it as a destination, I don't think we're gonna uh, work this one maybe in our lifetimes but we can work it moment to moment that we can do So how's the 50% of your attention on the body and the breath doing? Maybe I'll take a few questions if you have them about this. What's on your heart and mind?
0: Thank you for this talk. one one thought, one, one question. I guess I'd like your wisdom on has to do with um, the white affinity groups. You mentioned before that um, you thought it would be beneficial for um, groups to break up on the basis of gender, so women to break up and men to talk. And I wonder if class should be considered there as well.
3: Because I think
0: of white. Affinity groups, in a way, you know, Charlottesville was a white affinity group, in a way, and Mm -hmm. maybe you know, a lot of people who are identify as white are feeling a victimized group, Mm -hmm. rightfully or wrongfully, Mm -hmm. Um, and they tend to be poorer. They tend to be people who are suffering, in a way, and I'm wondering what, if you have any words about that, about about the class dynamic. They're white people. Mm-hmm. who are feel like they've been suffering mm-hmm. um and sometimes they feel that they're suffering because immigrant communities people of color are getting somehow privileges that they don't have because they're white mm-hmm. um i wonder if you have a, any thoughts on that
1: mm-hmm. yeah um I don't know if this is speaking from your direct experience or not, or if this is something you're observing as a social dynamic.
0: It's for me a social, okay. social dynamic.
1: Yeah. So um, So it's, what I find is that um, it may not be as easy for people like that to step into this engagement. Um, but in terms of looking at your question around whether the racial affinity groups should consider class as one of the dy- dynamics that look at who's coming together I would encourage that um, uh, yeah I think that if we could just look at who, who do I see this, that I think is most like me because we're all going to find that that's, none of that's true anyway once we start digging in uh, that that can be there Um, but I think what comes up for me with the question is uh, as long as white people that you're describing who feel uh, subordinated in our society and I think there's a large number of them who do uh, and so therefore are doing these things in order to gain a sense of um, dominance um, as long as that's I think what happens with that is white the other white folks then shy away from coming together as collective and when that's not happening then the narrative of uh, white nationalism or um, confederate um, uh, Loyalists. When that becomes the narrative, the only narrative, then um, then it's then it's unfortunate. Then what I see is white people even want to move further away from coming together as a group to explore this issue. So I'm not disagreeing that there's there are there are subordinated groups within whiteness, and there's still privilege that's operating there as well. So, yeah.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. I'm interested in addressing immigrant being racist. Um, we're, we live in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of people in tech. And I had an acquaintance. Uh, he's African-American. While we work at Uber, he committed suicide because people were racist towards him. Looking back, I found it really hard to believe the American friends of my generation would be openly racist, and I, being Chinese, I heard a lot of anti-gay and, and anti-black folks when they speak Chinese openly. So I think this is an issue, but I don't think
1: anyone's paying attention to it.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: And I think that's what I mean by the, um, uh, I would say that immigrant communities are also part of subordinated communities in this culture. Um, some there's there's a lot of uh, uh, people who might be considered subordinated races in this country who still feel dominant as well. Um, but a pi- a piece of what you're talking about is the individual activity that doesn't necessarily represent. What, a piece of what I'm hearing is you're talking about individuals that do individual things but are not all, all, not really speaking or connected in a racial group or not representing a group but individual actions. And I think that's one good place for uh, people to come together that are close to s- similar races. With With people of color, I think there could be Mix races in a racial affinity group because there's a different kind of inquiry that can happen there around our diversity as a, a bigger body of color. But that, that's a place where that would be explored. I think um, looking at what can be understood at the individual level is a little more complicated around race because we just come from so many different um, streams of that. Uh, but I do agree with you that not many people are looking at it and that it represents a certain invisibility of of experience because maybe it is seen from a single lens as opposed to a collective lens. Yeah, what what do you think you would want to do about something with
2: them? I went to some Chinese churches and mm-hmm. I feel like whenever I brought up like gay rights or racist mm-hmm. racism they just like shut me up. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Those don't are know. not your people to be exploring. <laughs> you need to find a couple of other people that you think are ready for the conversation. That's a big part of forming. You don't want to go to people where you have to convert them. You want to engage in a racial affinity group with people that want to go, that want to dive into that so that you can be more fortified when you do go into systems like that. Uh, and sometimes a fortification supports us in being able to sit there and be with that without needing them to be different that's a source of freedom for us yeah.
3: Yeah. thank you mm-hmm. <coughs> the um, The issue of racism in our society has had such a, a dominant historical perspective that is deeply rooted in the, the sociology of class and the the motivation that continues to feed racism which is extremely hard for people to acknowledge the element of denial and guilt associated with owning those feelings that contribute to the disparity the difference difference in seeing other people, particularly people who look like me. Mm-hmm. And the sometimes understandable desire that they, they have to say, well, you're no different from me. Mm-hmm. And, and I accept you, therefore, I couldn't be a racist. Right. So the insight I'm looking for in in my practice is how to have this discussion. How to neutralize the inherent guilt Mm -hmm. and tendency for people who are not like me to be reluctant to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Because our failure to acknowledge and talk about this only allows the implicit to continue to exist in the implicit disparity and distortion of how we perceive each other. Yes. I wonder if you could offer some ideas in how you approach this, confronting this issue. Yes.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the question and can relate to it very personally and also from a seat of supporting this inquiry that, you know, this is not an uncommon question. Um, and I could come at it from a, f- a few ways. Uh, it's true that there's this distortion of perception and we're the target of the harm that's a result of it. Whether we're trying to talk about it and, and we're in the, the distortion of, of and the discomfort, the squirming that happens um, around it is a real experience. Um, and I, I think what's also true is it's not going to change immediately or soon. So when I look at this issue, I... For me, I've found it useful to open up the lens of it because the individual incidents of it can be so intense that I'm just gripped and crippled and shut down. So I'm looking at my view and how I'm looking at this. I'm looking at the fact that I can't change where people are or how they show up, that I don't have that control. So I'm looking at that. Um, I'm also looking at I wish it wasn't this way I wish it were different and I'm looking at this is what's actually happening right here and it sucks so I'm seeing that I also know I can't change people uh, but I can be choiceful around how I have this conversation with others so that I'm not harming myself another thing I'm looking at at the individual level is that my freedom can't be dependent on whether they get it or not. So I'm also looking at, okay, what's the the deeper truth around our humanity that I'm sitting and sizzling in at any given moment? Given that I can't change the external environment, how do I support myself in being present with it and doing something about it where I'm not stewing in the ignorance that I'm facing with regularity? So one of the ways I try to work with that and the offer that I give is, is why I feel so strongly about white people being in racial affinity groups so that they can wake up and do that work so that I'm not having to constantly point it out all the time. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, what is it? it's a long distance run and we know this because we've been living with this for generations. But it's still a long-distance run and not a sprint. And I can't, for me, I've found that I can't see the resolve always in the moments with what reveals it, what what just shows up. But more and more, I'm able to respond to it um, and choose how I expend my energy around it so that when I am taking action, I'm making sure um, uh, it's... uh, It's in places where I feel like I can have some traction and some momentum. For example, I'm not trying to address institutional issues. I'm trying to address issues at the group level and raise awareness around the group level. So sometimes when you're in interactions with cross races, you have to decide, is that that where you want to intervene? Or if I get activated with another pocket of ignorance, can I sit with this and choose whether i 'm going to intervene here or not, or whether there's an, another place where I can put energy where I find it more fruitful, but I think for me, the biggest thing is just understanding oh this is this is where we are right now in our society, and it 's not going to run me crazy so that 's a piece of how I work with it, with this practice to keep myself grounded and clear and recognize when my heart is contracted and also when it's broken and to surround myself with people where I feel like I can be cared for and supported. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. Thanks. <clears throat>
2: It's great to be with you. I, I sat with you at the um Healing Rage this feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah at Spirit Rock and it's and I have your book here. I just appreciate your work very much. Thank you. Um, have a question, but I, I wanna present um gender nine non-bi- but non non binary gender. I get I'm a little nervous a little charge. <laughs> um, because I really appreciate the affinity group conversation, and then as soon as it becomes male or female, I go, "Oh, I don't, you know, fit." So I just like to, to offer that um, to you and, and to others to just consider that. Thank you. Um, and I think you kind of just answered this, but despair. You know, like I really struggle with despair. And how to hold it, and how to stay, and maybe it's a simple answer of you know practice. We just hold the practice, mm-hmm. but I I wonder how you hold it. The despair. The despair. Do you get to that place? Does it, or just, do you just you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's kind of a dumb question, but I just I don't know. That's... What what happens for you? I get to what's the point, how uh, and then i and then I go history, I have to go, this is a human condition, this suffering, and we are so in it, and i can I hold the uh, I think trying to get to this place of and then I sit you know I sit, and I find my breath, and I just in that moment, um, but lately it's just up and up and up, and we're in such a. Toxic. I think for me, I'm in the uh, most intense place of, of my lifetime. So I think yeah. this is my own individual. And then I'm seeing f- for, you know, the last couple of years, really understanding more of the collective and really understanding how my privilege has kept me safe and, and yeah. you know. yeah. So I think that's part of that too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, despair uh, makes sense in this time that we're in. Um, and I think it's also useful to go back in your own lineage to look at how your people have dealt with despair, just to also just bring that into more view. How was that coped with, dealt with? Uh, what did people do with that? Just bringing a curiosity of something larger than the moment into, into play. And to know that despair is really um, a certain kind of weight um, and I, I know, I know for myself, the reason I feel it so intensely is because I love so deeply. And to remember um, some of our compassion practices of, of, um, of it, um, it can, uh, uh, it can feel really impossible. Uh, but when we look at, at at how other people in other cultures have managed to. To, to weather this, I think we can feel a broader compassion and uh, understanding that um, an understanding of it when I find myself in despair, I think about my ancestors and what they carried and um, and um, I allow myself to really be saturated by it and then um, Inevitably, I can see some light popping through. You know, despair can feel so absolute, uh, but it's not. It, it's, a, it's, it's moments and then it's different gradations of despair. There's, there's different weights. There's different places in the body that it lives. We can bring a curiosity to how it's living here and now and really bring a sense of care to ourselves. but um, And it's appropriate. It makes sense that we would feel despair to let that have its, have its place, to give it some air and light. Yeah. And thank you for the binary question. Appreciate that. How's your heart? Yeah. So maybe we can just sit together for a few minutes before we leave. So we, may we remember that we belong to each other. and May we grow in our awareness that what we do matters. May our thoughts and actions reflect the world we want to live in and Leave behind. May we heal the seeds of separation inherited from our ancestors in gratitude for this life. May all beings without exception benefit from our practice, from our growing awareness. And may we meet the cries, the racial cries of the world with as much wisdom and grace as we can muster. so much for your attention.